We're going to open up God's Word together now. Uh, we're continuing this morning in the book of Nehemiah, and we're reading from Nehemiah chapter 2, and Maria is going to lead us in that reading. Thanks, Maria. So we're reading Nehemiah chapter 2, the whole chapter this morning. So Nehemiah chapter 2, starting at verse 1. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Axtersis, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not said in his, sat in, I had not been sad in his presence, and the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, Let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and the gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, What are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven. And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favour in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen, and the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, How long will you be gone, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, let letters be given me to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Aspen, the the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the walls of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me that what I asked for the good hand of my Lord God was upon me. Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. But when Sambalat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. So I entered Jerusalem and was there three days. Then I rose in the night I and a few men with me, and I told no one that my God had put into my, what God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one at which I rode. I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring and to the dung gate, and I expect, inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall, and I turned back and entered by the valley gate, and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing. And I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. Then I said to them, You see the trouble we are in? How Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for their good work. But when Sambalat the Horonite and Tobian Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Gisham the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, 
What is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Then I reply to them, The king of heaven will make us prosper, and we his servants will arise and build. But you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. Thanks, Maria. Uh, it'd be really helpful to keep your Bible open there at Nehemiah chapter 2, uh, so we can refer to it as we, uh, we work our way through it this morning. Uh, if you're new, newish here, um, you may not realize, but we are just starting this new series, sermon series, uh, working our way through this Old Testament book, the story of Nehemiah, the story of a kingdom builder of God working through him. Uh, we started last week in chapter 1 with his prayer, and today we uh, see Nehemiah begin that work. Uh, boys and girls, kids, uh, there is a kids' sheet and outline that you might want to follow along with. Uh, there's also an, uh, another sermon outline for older people, bigger people, I don't know, grown-ups, uh, that you can follow it useful, you might find useful to follow along with as well. Uh, let's pray before we dive in, shall we? Father, we thank you that we have this time now to have your word open and to consider uh, what you did in the past, but what you are saying to us in the present. So we ask, Lord God, that the same Holy Spirit who was at work in causing these words to be written, that he would be at work in my speaking, in our listening, and in our hearts today. Lord God, that we would know you in greater measure, and we would know and experience your work amongst us. So Father, please take away distraction. Please give us ears to hear. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, one of the, uh, one of the most famous stories for an Australian's uh, to come out of World War II is the story of Simpson and his donkey. Uh, in those early days of the Gallipoli campaign, John Simpson Kirkpatrick uh, worked in one of the most dangerous parts of the Gallipoli area, in Shrapnel Gully. His job was, with his donkey, to ferry injured soldiers from the front line down to the beach, where they would be evacuated out onto hospital ships. Over the first 26 days of that campaign, he risked his life over and over again. He laid it on the line for the sake of others. And John Simpson Kirkpatrick died on the 19th of May, just 26 days after they had landed. There's something about stories like that, isn't there, that that really encourage us. That in many ways, though they're about death and suffering, they're really heartwarming stories. We love to hear about people, heroes, everyday people, everyday heroes, who put their lives on the line and who do it selflessly for the sake of others. We love to hear about people who are willing to risk their lives at the time of crisis and emergency for the good of someone other than themselves. Now, when we hear this, I, I think sometimes we ask the question, what would I do in such a situation? Would I be willing to take such risks? What would it take for me to, to be in that situation of risk-taking for the sake of somebody else? There's actually been a number of studies done on the types of people who are willing to take risks selflessly. 
They've been done on people who've been given awards for their heroism. They've tried to look at whether there's some different wiring in the brain, some different brain chemistry going on. Is it a matter of upbringing or character? Is it something in their past? It's quite interesting that most of them come back quite inconclusive. This morning we are going to be thinking about and talking about risk-taking, but risk-taking for the sake of God and for his kingdom that he is building in this world. We're talking about bold risks for the sake of Jesus and for the sake of his work in the lives of others. And we're doing that as we're considering the risk-taking of the kingdom builder, Nehemiah. Throughout this chapter, which you can see if you've got a Bible open there, is divided into two parts. We're going to look at how he places his position, his life, his safety on the line, not for his own cause, but for the cause of God and for the sake of others. And we don't need to look very hard to see the reason why he does this. It's not a matter of brain chemistry. It's not a matter of upbringing. His reason for it has got everything to do with the character of God. So let's have a look at the first section. And here we're looking at verses 1 to 8, where the challenge for Nehemiah is a very personal one. It's a challenge to use and to risk his privileged position for the sake of God and his kingdom work. Now, when we left Nehemiah last week, you'll remember that he had been in prayer. Prayer that came out of the great need for God's people and the character of God who hears his prayers, who loves his people and is powerful. It was prayer that God would give him success, as he said, in the sight of this man. And right at the end of that chapter, we understand who this man is, isn't it? We understand that Nehemiah has this great position as cupbearer to the king, to the king at Xerxes. This is an incredibly privileged position, one that only comes to someone that the king trusts. It's the role to taste the wine of the king before he drinks it, in case especially it's been poisoned. But as privileged as it is, it is not a position of equality with the king. He is very much the king's servant at the bidding of the king himself. Now right here in chapter 2 verse 1, we get another little time stamp. And we realize that it's been about three to five months since that first report came back. That's, that's over a hundred days probably of praying, of fasting, and of waiting. Waiting for God to answer this prayer to give him success. It's time also that we read in verse 1 where Nehemiah had been deliberate not to be sad in front of the king. But on this day, something is different. 
Now, some of the commentators suggest that possibly Nehemiah allows himself on this occasion to grieve in front of the king so that he can force, in a way, a conversation. But I don't, I don't think that's what's going on. His response to the king's questioning is a response of fear. I am not so sure he was planning this. How this come about, we're not quite sure. Maybe, maybe on this particular day, the grief was overwhelming. Maybe he simply sort of forgot, let his guard down and forgot to be happy in front of the king. But the king notices what's going on. If you look there in verse 2, he says, why are your face sad? He, he says, you're not sick. And then the king gets it. This is a sadness of the heart. <laughs> Nehemiah's reaction there. Is quite telling. Then I was very much afraid. Nehemiah is worried. Here's this opportunity that he has been praying for. Here requires him to act. To himself be part of the answer to the prayer that God is praying. But in spite of that fear, he speaks out. And it's there in verse 3. Let the king live forever. Why should, my face, why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? This is a bold, bold move. I don't know if you've got a chance to read through the book of Ezra. Uh, the one that comes just before this. In Ezra chapter 4, the people of Israel have begun to rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. But there's been a petition to the king, this king, for them to stop. And he ordered the people at that time to stop the work of rebuilding. What is Nehemiah doing here? He's saying, I'm sad because of the state of my people, and king live forever, it's your fault. What a bold, gutsy move. One that risks this incredible privileged position that he has, one that actually, in fact, risks his very life. He's asking the king to do something incredible and something that is going to cost the king greatly. The king asks the question. He says to them in verse 4, what are you requesting? Nehemiah's answer or response is kind of in keeping with what we've seen in Nehemiah already. We notice there that he prays. He prays a brief prayer, what people will call an arrow prayer, It's kind of the summary or the punchline of the prayer that he's been praying for three to five months every single day before God give me mercy in the sight of this man, and then he does it. He actually requests that the king would not just let him go, but the king would send him to be the one to rebuild a wall that the king had said should not be built. And more than that, he kind of like, well, if I'm in for a penny, I'm in for a pound. Why don't you give me a letter for your forest keeper to give me the wood to be able to do it? 
And by the way, you can send a letter to all those other governors that are there as well, the ones who told you in the first place to stop doing this, to tell them that I've got permission to do this. And incredibly, the king says, how long will you be? Here you go. Now, there's a lot in this. There's a lot in it that is surprising, and there's a lot in it that's bold. It's bold that Nehemiah would would ask the question. And not only would ask the one question, but would ask the many questions to be able to go. And it's surprising that the king, at his own cost, will allow him to do so. But in verse 8 we set to see the reason why this all happens. There at the end, what does it say? And the king granted me what I asked for the good hand of my God was upon me. What is it that gives Nehemiah this boldness to ask the king? What is it that enables him to take this incredible risk of his position, of his privilege, of even his own life in asking for this? What is it that stirs in the king's heart so that he actually becomes a part of God's incredible kingdom building plan? That he becomes a kingdom builder in the hands of the God of heaven? It's not because Nehemiah is so courageous or so persuasive. It happens because the good hand of his God is upon him. Kingdom building is risky business. Kingdom building is not easy. It's one thing to pray for things in the privacy of our own home, in the comfort of our own bedroom, but to pray, God, use me, is a risky prayer to pray. To be put on the front line with an opening from God to speak, to be bold, That's risky business. We risk friendships. We risk our position. We risk the respect of others. It's scary work. It's natural to be afraid. It's natural to be hesitant. But we also do so knowing that the good hand of our God is upon us. The good hand of our God is the one who is at work in building his kingdom. Maybe you've been praying for someone that you know to become a follower of Jesus. I hope, I trust that we've, we're all praying those prayers. Maybe we've been praying that God would give us an opening to share our faith, to share something of the Bible with that person. That's a risky prayer to pray. 
what are we going to do when God opens that door and there's a moment, a question, a sense of prompting by God's Spirit? We're probably going to be afraid. But we're also going to have the good hand of our God upon us as we take those opportunities. Young people here, and not so young people as well, we're going to be put in lots of situations where people around us are taking a certain path in life and making certain choices that we know that God doesn't agree with. We know are not right for followers of Jesus. We're going to be put in situations where we're going to have to make a stand and say, I I can't go along with that. And it's risky. You risk friendships. You risk getting a bad name. You risk people thinking less of you. It's scary. But the good hand of our God is upon us when we stand for his kingdom. Maybe we get asked to get involved with a certain ministry, either in the church or in the wider community. It's a, it's a, it's a ministry that's going to take time. Ministry to people is taxing. It costs energy. Maybe we're not sure whether we're quite equipped for it. Maybe it's going to stretch us beyond what we've done before. Most, most ministry does that. We might be nervous. We might be anxious and scared about it. But we can take the opportunities that God gives us because His good hand is upon us. The hand that created heaven and earth is at work building His kingdom and is at work in and through His people today. Now, we might think that having got that out of the way, Nehemiah is now on easy street when it comes to kingdom building. He has letters from the king. He has the king's guard to take him there. All he has to do now is go to Jerusalem and build. But as we continue reading, we realize that it's obstacle after obstacle that is still in his way. Having traveled from Jerusalem to Susa, I want to suggest that as we go through this next section, there are three more challenges and obstacles that are right there. The first of them we're introduced to in verse 10, and that's opposition. No sooner does he arrive and he begins to share the letters from the king that we read of Sanballat and Tobiah, who are in opposition to him. And by the end of the chapter, they will be joined by Geshem the Arab as well. In a couple of weeks' time, we're going to be looking at them and their opposition in greater detail as it's explained uh, further on in the book. But for now, it's likely that these three are all local governors of area which surrounds Jerusalem and Israel. They are mostly of mixed race and of mixed religion, And they have been active in oppressing the people of God. They do not want this wall rebuilt. They do not want the fortunes of Israel restored because it is going to cost them some of the lucrative trade and abuse 
in which they are engaging with. And so we read here in verse 10 that they are uh, displeased greatly with what is going on. And by the end of the chapter, we read that they are jeering and despising Nehemiah and those who are about to go about their work. There is opposition and it is only going to grow. The second obstacle in the way of Nehemiah is the incredible enormity of the task before him. Nehemiah rests up for a few days and then by night and in secret, only with a few, he undertakes an inspection of the walls and gates of Jerusalem. You can read of that from verses 12 uh, down to verse 15. He goes through different parts of the wall. He inspects all of the various gates which people come in and out of. And his conclusion is there in verse 17. He talks about the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned, and how the people suffer derision. The task in front of him is enormous. The job at hand is important, and next week we'll look at why it's important. But it's not an easy job. And it's going to cost him and a lot of others very dearly. The third obstacle that we read is actually the people of Israel themselves. Notice how Nehemiah goes about this work in secret. He doesn't get out there at high noon uh, with his tape measure and start making measurements of walls and gates and towers. Obvious to everybody what's about to happen. Why is that? He wants to be clear on what the task involves before he announces it. Because he's not certain how the news is going to be received. Here comes this man from Susa, from the other side of the empire, with great plans for what the people can do with their city. We know what it's like when an outsider comes in, don't we, and tells us all the things that we could do to make this place better. (laughs) He's a little worried about the pushback that he might get. But what does he do? With opposition with an enormous task and uncertainty about how people are going to receive it, he pushes on. It's there in verse 17. He calls all of the people together. It starts in verse 16. The priests, the nobles, the officials, the rest who are going to do all the work. And he says to them, let's do this thing. Let's rebuild. In spite of all that stands against He's willing to put himself out and he spurs the people on to strengthen their hand to do their work. And the reason why is given in verse 18 and verse 20. Verse 18, he said, And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good and also the words that the king had spoken to me. And there in verse 20, he says to the opponents and to the wider group, The God of heaven will make us prosper, and we, his servants, will arise and build. Why so bold? Why stand so firm in the face of so much opposition, 
Why put himself out there again and again and again? Because he has utmost confidence in the work of God. Because of all that God has already done. Because of all that God has promised. Because it is God's will for this wall to be rebuilt and the people to be rescued. One of the things that became obvious about Nehemiah from chapter 1 is that Nehemiah knows his Bible. Or at least he knows the Bible as they had it in his day. He knew of the great promises of God. And he knew of the plan of God from the creation of time to rescue and restore a people to be his very own. Nehemiah is not acting here on a tangent. He's not acting of his own will. He's acting because he knows the plans and the purposes of God for his people and his world. And he knows that God has called him to be a part of it. See, right from the time that we fell into sin... God has been about this incredible work of restoring broken, sinful, and rebellious people back to himself. Restoring all of creation through the work of his son. Right from the start in Genesis chapter 3, he promised that he would send a seed. He would send a, a child of Adam and Eve who would crush the head of the serpent. In Genesis 12, he begins to spell out how that's going to take place. It's going to take place through one man and his family, Abraham. And he would make them a great nation. He would give them their own land and he would bless them. And through them, he would bless all the peoples of the world. We see his plan develop as he has first a tabernacle and then a temple to be built. A place where he can come and make his home with his people. That would be at the very center for his plan, restoration, so that people would come to meet with him and to know him. And even though he sent them into exile and he's punished them for his sin, for their sin, he has promised that he would deliver them, return them, and that through them he would continue his plan to bless the world and to restore people. And in that plan, he will cause the city to be rebuilt. And to this city, he will send his only son who would come and make it possible for the curse of sin to be broken. For sinful people to be restored. To come back to God and His family. To be made new. To be a part of His kingdom and His family forever. Nehemiah is not just building a wall. He is being used by God to build His kingdom. 
A kingdom that finds its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. A kingdom that He has made us a part of through His death and resurrection. A kingdom that He's called us to belong to as He works in our hearts by His Spirit, as He caused us to hear the gospel and to come to faith in Christ. A kingdom that He is still at work building today through His church, through you and me. It's still tough work. There's opposition. There's uncertainty. It's a massive task. We don't always know how it's going to work out. It still brings challenge after challenge. It confronts us in our comfort and our ease. It asks us to do things that many times we would rather not do. It will cause us, call us to sacrifice, demand of us our very lives. But it's not for our sake. It's for the sake of God, for the kingdom of His Son, and for the people around about us. We do so because it is part of His great plan to restore people. It's His hand, His good hand that is upon us, that enables us and equips us and calls us and uses us. As a church, we went through a phase last year where we looked at what we're here for, trying to gain some clarity around our purpose, around our mission as a church, what it is that God would have us be. It's a great process to go through, but it hasn't solved any problems. It hasn't caused things to be easier. In fact, it's in many ways demanded more of us. It's asked us to think about the things that we do in ministry and in church life. In some ways, it's raised the bar on our expectations of people who serve, of what we do as elders, of what we do in different ministries. In some ways, it would be nice to go back and to lack clarity, just muddle our way around. But we don't do this because it's easy. We don't do this because it makes life a breeze, because it makes church life so much more comfortable. We do so in the knowledge that God, through His Son, is building His kingdom. Causing His church, calling His church to be bold, to take risks, to do that for His sake and the sake of His work and the people around about us. It's risky business. But the good hand of our God is upon us. Let's pray together, shall we? Lord God, we thank you that your kingdom is coming, has come in Christ, 
and continues to come into this world. As the gospel goes out, as people repent and believe in Jesus, as your word is proclaimed and as your spirit is at work. We thank you that that kingdom has come in our own lives, in our own hearts. As we put our faith in Christ, thank you that we became a part of your family and your plan forever. We thank you that even us, our little church here in South Barwon, is a part of your great kingdom work. We thank you that you are using even us in our weakness and in our failing for your great, glorious, and eternal work. Lord God, we pray that our confidence and our hope would be in you. We pray that we would know and experience your good hand upon us and the work that we do. And we ask, Lord, that you would enable us to be bold and courageous for the sake of your kingdom knowing that you are the one who is at work. Well, God, we realize that this is a risky prayer. It's not a prayer of comfort and of ease, but it's a prayer that calls us to respond in action. So, Lord God, please be at work amongst us. Be gracious to us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.